Welcome into another episode of the Esports Network podcast, presented, of course, by Esports Network. For the website we've just launched, go check out the relaunched esportsnetwork.com where we have all your up-to-date news. It's no longer just a podcast. We're doing articles. We've got the latest scores. We're actually hosting amateur tournaments over on esportsnetwork.com. So go check that out. But here on the podcast, we are covering a really interesting topic for you today. It is cheating in esports stadiums. So you may have seen this in the news recently. But basically, people are able to see other screens in esports stadiums. It's a very complicated problem. And to help me talk about this, I am joined by Dustin Sweeney. You may recognize that name from a previous podcast. Dustin is a senior designer for HKS Sports and Entertainment, and they're doing work on the Team Vitality uh, facility, studio, headquarters. What, what are you calling it, Dustin? Yeah, I mean, you kind of touched on all of it right there. Thanks again for having me. Uh, good to be back. I'm so excited to have you back. So he's designing this beautiful facility in Paris, HKS Sports Entertainment. They've done work on the U.S. Bank Stadium, on the L.A. Rams Complex in Inglewood, and just a lot of really interesting work. So he really knows how to design these massive venues perfect for competition. Yeah, there's definitely lots to think about, especially when you start thinking about sight lines on both the competition side and on the visitor side. Yeah, so that's what we're going to be talking about today and some of the inherent challenges in designing an esports arena that maybe don't come up in traditional sports as much. Uh, but first, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about that last podcast. So we're not going to go a ton into what HKS does or the work they've done at Team Vitality because we've already covered that. And anybody who's listened to that first podcast, don't want it to get boring and rehash that. But I do encourage you to go check that one out. It was Dustin. He was joined by another senior designer, uh, Chi Batia, to talk about really everything about that Team Vitality studio, which promises to be incredible. So go check out that other podcast if you want to learn more about you know what HKS does and what uh, Dustin and Chi are thinking about when they're designing a, a facility in the center of Paris. Tough challenge. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a unique, unique take on on what these videos could look like, and and definitely a a great taste of what it means to be on the streets of Paris. Yeah, it was one of my favorite podcasts I've done because it it brought up a lot of different things that I'd really never thought about. I mean, you you attend these different esports events and venues, but the design process to it was pretty foreign to me, and that's some of my favorite podcasts to do are concepts where I really have no idea what y'all are talking about. And so it's, I, I get to learn a lot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, but on this podcast, so what has been in the news recently for this is a Fortnite World Cup player whose gamer tag is Letwike. I okay, so it's L E T W one K three. I I don't know how you say that. I'm sorry. It's let. Yeah, I would say like. Yeah, let let like let like it's the ones and I and the threes and E. Mm. That's that's what I thought. I, <laughs> we'll we'll run with that. We don't know. He's a 14 year old player from Russia, and at the Fortnite World Cup, they were pretty crammed in together at Arthur Ashe Stadium, and he was caught looking at another player's screen. 
I believe this had to be in the solos event because his duo partner isn't mentioned. So he was solo player looking at another player's screen and he got removed from the event. And it's it's so interesting because if you saw the World Cup setup, they were set monitors next to each other. So, you know, looking at somebody else's screen was pretty easy to do. It just a slight tilt of the head. But apparently they had a zero tolerance policy for it. And that's basically what we're going to be covering with Dustin. How do you design these facilities in a way that prevents players from doing that? Um, Dustin, you I don't, I, I don't think you worked at all on the Fortnite World Cup at Arthur Ashe. But what are some of the challenges that go into designing a facility that can put 100 players in the center ring and make it a fair place to play the game? Definitely. Yeah, I remember I, I got to see a couple of sneak peeks of that set um, out there, and I was—it was kind of one of my first questions after working on a couple of facilities on, you know, here at HKS. You know, how are they going to challenge, or how are they going to uh, work around being being so close in proximity? Because you know, we see it, you know, Overwatch League or, or any other kind of six-on-six, and you know, you're sitting next to your teammate, and you can't see the other team's monitors, and uh, they're. There's uh, regulations in place where, you know, those 6v6 have to sit far back enough on the stage where they can't see any other screen in the entire arena, um, which has been really interesting trying to work towards that because you know, as a designer, you try to create these, you know, dynamic sets or dynamic stages where, you know, to really put the, put the performers on a, on a pedestal, so to say, right? But uh, really, in all honesty, they have to be kind of recessed into the actual stage set so that they can't see anything. Um, and it's, it really does become a challenge when you start to think of, you know, uh, when you start to design custom facilities for these uh, venues and you start to put digital content and other forms of media around the bowl, you have to think about, well, can a player see this? Is this, is this specific media content going to show something that's game-oriented? Um, and sometimes you have to make that chance. Maybe it's just a light accent as opposed to actual video content. Um, so it's been unique, you know, for so many, you know, in the more traditional sports aspects where our sight lines are concerned from the, uh, the fan experience, right? From the seat experience, where can I see the, you know, can I see the edge of the field? Can I see every play that happens on the field? Now we're have to like kind of turn our thinking around and what do the sight lines look like as a competitor on stage? Um, so it's, it's definitely a challenge and definitely been unique to see some of the results that we've been working on. Yeah, that's it, it's such a tough challenge because you can just imagine from a design perspective, you're like, oh, okay, what can we do to enhance the fan experience? We could have, you know, you think about a, a traditional sports, you could have the scoreboards around the side or stats or maybe things show your replay or even just any sort of board around the outside of somebody who might not have a great view at the center broadcast. But in esports, all those little things can actually cause problems for the competitive integrity of the event it's a really tough challenge of making sure every yeah, single and... screen yeah go ahead oh yeah uh no i was just i got to witness some of this at uh, the uh, dallas fuel homestand weekend back in i think it was april um you know they used kind of an existing uh, facility there up in uh, the allen event center and one thing i noticed and it, it kind of it, you know spurred a lot of thinking coming out of that you know, when you're, when you're designing, you know, finishes around the bowl, nothing can be reflected. 
they had to go through and cover all the glass partitions and glass railings so that none of the reflections from that glass made it back to the stage. So it's not only just screens and monitors, it's also any kind of reflective surfaces, surfaces that would potentially give any kind of visual acuity or visual bounce back to the stage and to the players. It was really interesting to see. Wow, that's crazy. I never even thought about how glass could obviously right. reflect all the lights inside. That's There's so many things you all have to think about for this problem. Yeah, <laughs> it's very interesting, yeah. Um, so, yeah, when you start to think about, you know, if you would design, you know, especially for one-off facilities for esports, we're thinking about, of course, sweet products and, and elevated experiences. And, you know, in a lot of spaces, those typically or sometimes have kind of glass partitions in them. Can't really do that now. Uh, so we have to think of different ways to either partition or or think about how um, how to use materials wisely so that they aren't interfering with, with what's happening on stage. Yeah, that's I, I hadn't even thought about that. It just goes to show about how many different problems can be caused, and that's really your job is to identify all the different possible issues, right? And then still package it together in a place that looks beautiful but doesn't have any issues as well. Yeah. And the other crazy thing is when you think about esports, so it's not just being able to see the whole screen because if there's one point of the map that has the most information in it, it's the bottom right corner or the bottom left in some maps, and that's the mini-map which shows the location of all the different players out there. And that is like the biggest, and we've seen that in League of Legends, that people were sneaking glances at the minimap, because even though they couldn't see the full broadcast, they could lean back in their chair and catch the bottom right corner of it, which you'd think would be not a huge problem, and suddenly they, can, they know the positions of every single player on the map. And so it's not just even that. You can't just be like, oh, well, don't don't have the full screen available to them. It's you can't have any part of the screen possible to see because they will take that little bit of advantage and run with it. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's any any competitive advantage. I mean, is is kind of what defined as cheating, right? So I mean, um, you know, take it back to the Fortnite example, right? It's a little bit can be put back towards the, you know, not to speak harshly against the event organizers, but, you know, were the dividers big enough? I don't know. I mean, and you have to think of, you know, levels of efficiency, too, because the, they were using the same seat as the duos tournament as well, where they had to kind of work as, as teammates. So, um, you know, kind of on the surface level, you think about, do we just put in bigger dividers? Yeah, that's that's the easy question. But really, how do we still make those, those competitive environments um, you know, friendly for the competitors as well so that they feel comfortable in where they're at. They're not just sitting in some sealed off cube on stage. That's, I mean, that doesn't seem like very much of an exciting experience for anybody. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why they didn't make the dividers any better because they didn't want that sealed off cube. I mean, they need to be able to find any of these, whatever, they didn't know Booga was going to win. So they have to be able to find his spot and show him quickly and so that at some point you have to make a trade-off between broadcast capabilities and integrity in the venue design. It's really a tough challenge. And by the way, I really enjoyed the, the design for the Fortnite. Was just, that, was, that was pretty cool. The double-decker with the screens all the way around. I thought I was really impressed with how that turned out when I first saw the couple 
secret shots coming from you know the Friday before is really cool. Yeah, that that venue. First set design I've seen in a while. That's actually been like okay, that's that's something different. That, that's something better than what that's what's been put out there so far. Yeah, when people talk about issues with Fortnite esports, it's not the what Epic does to create the spectacle around their events. That is not what they're talking about. They are incredible at building out the venues, about bringing in the actors and the celebrities to really make it feel like a red carpet event. Epic, the whole way they do that. I mean, they transformed Arthur Ashe Stadium to a just a beautiful place to play Battle Royale games. So I, I was incredibly impressed as well. On the Battle Royale front, that... This, I, excuse me, I have to imagine there's some designers who create these stadiums like you, who are like, okay, we have a, we have a challenge of making a League of Legends setup, or an Overwatch League setup, it's 5 on 5, it's 6 on 6, it has a lot of different difficulties that come with it, well now, the most popular esport in the world, or one of them, is Battle Royale. And now we have a hundred people going. Like, was, was there some internal designer discussions? Like, are you guys kidding? Really? <laughs> yeah, there were definitely some like you know holy shit moments <laughs> of like, okay, you want to put a hundred people on stage, but then you know the following weekend you want to do a five v five, so you can't have the same set. I mean, you have to really think about all of the flexibility that you can put into a space, and and it's not even just so much you know putting a hundred people on stage. I mean. It's really all the everything that comes on the back end of that, right? Every dedicated hardline and every dedicated machine has to go to each one of those seats, right? And and how do you prepare for that as well? And have all those connections ready and available and reliable and redundant uh, is is definitely a challenge when thinking about how to make a place as flexible as possible. Yeah, especially now when people watching esports, I mean, if you watched an esports event seven years ago, you sort of expected it to be like in a hotel ballroom or just kind of thrown <laughs> together. And the the standards for what an, e an esports venue and an esports broadcast should look like have just shot through the roof in the last couple of years. Yeah, I am as well. What things can you bring over? I mean, with this new spectacle, now you're we're selling out traditional sports arenas, Arthur Ashe Stadiums, where the U.S. Open tennis is held. Uh, you know, you've seen the Barclays Center sell out recently, Olympic Park over in Beijing. Uh, the new the League of Legends Worlds this year will be in three different massive stadiums. So, what can you take over from your time doing traditional sports that helps inform your esports broadcast? Yeah, um, a lot of it, I kind of touched on it earlier too, is, you know, re readdressing, rethinking how we value sidelines, right? You know, for so long we've been putting value on a sightline to, you know, the goal line or to the sideline or to, you know, the playing surface. Well, now that surface is a screen. And how do we then rethink about the value of sightlines to that screen and, and where do those you know, premium seats now like that used to be, you know, for the longest time, I used to be, you know, a couple rows back from the 50 yard line dead center. Now it's uh, maybe a couple levels up and more centered on the screen and with more amenities rather than, 
you know, quote, quote unquote, close to the action, right? Because, I mean, to be honest, there's not much action. Yeah, you can think of it sort of like a movie theater, right? Where it's like the the seats most likely to be available are the ones at the absolute front row, whereas the ones in the middle row and the dead middle are the quickest ones to be grabbed. Right, all right. So a lot of what we're working on currently on that, how do we make sure that the, the you know those seats are now starting to you know, define themselves as being the, the higher priority seat where people really want to sit? So do we make that better? Do we make that more accessible to everybody? Or do we kind of make it a more premium experience? Um, so it's, it's trying to, and then, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, flipping the whole, whole idea of sight lines on it back to the player as opposed to the, the fan experience. Um, and, you know, yes, there are some stipulations in like, say the NFL where, you know, you have to have a play clock in a certain place so that the quarterback can see the play clock and, and things like that, um, that you have to think about. But here, this is a completely different scenario where you have to make sure that they can't see anything not that they have priority sight lines to something they can't or not allowed to see anything else but their screen so um now you know we're kind of forced to look at the the venue from you know either the performance site or from where you know where the action is happening as opposed to where fans is, which is kind of challenging and, and very interesting to look at it in that that respect what are some of those other examples of traditional sports players i i going into this i was like oh you know, you never have to think about what the player can see, but you're right. The quarterback needs to be able to see the play clock. Basketball, you need to be able to see the shot clock up there. Are, are there some other examples of having to deal with uh, traditional sports players' sight lines on the field or court? Um, I mean, we kind of just touched on the, the two biggest ones that, mm. you know, we deal with on a, on a you know, yearly basis, however you want, want to say it. But, um, you know... Also, it's about, you know, making sure that there's just, um, you know, sometimes we get get issues or, or call-outs about um, positioning the stadium in a certain way so that, you know, direct sunlight, either the setting sun or, or afternoon sun isn't in somebody's eyes when they're trying to throw the ball or receive a ball. Um, just recently at the Texas Rangers Stadium, we were doing, you know, um, kind of sight line observation for outfielder, outfielders trying to catch a pop fly or trying to catch a, a really long hit against the wall. You know, what is that outfielder looking at when he's looking up staring at the roof for the ceiling structure? So making sure that, that there is enough contrast so they can see the ball or if, if there's not, then are we lighting the ball in some way? Are we giving some up light to catch any kind of in, incoming uh, ball so that they can, they can catch and have a, a fair, uh, fair chance at catching the ball? Yeah, that that is really interesting as well because you would hate to to be seeing routine pop flies being missed and everyone turns to the designer and is like, "Hey, what's up? <laughs> can't see the ball." <laughs> yeah, that, that, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of you know kind of nuances that you don't typically realize from from sitting on you know in the audience or sitting in the in the stand that you know there are. There are sightline issues on all sides of the, the you know, proverbial ball here. It's really interesting. I'm curious now, so if you ever had the, the fortunate experience of being in the first couple of rows in a traditional sporting event, usually they have like a VIP section, you know, whether it's courtside and basketball, where it's like the security at the top of the, the tunnel is like one person, and then the security at the bottom is like police guards 
who don't let you get into those bottom three rows. Is esports yeah. gonna eventually like adopt something like that? Except it'll be just like three random rows in the middle. <laughs> I think you know if, if if the venue design is done correctly, um, getting to those experiences will be you know somewhat removed from you know the GA experience. Right, you know, those people who are going to that premium seat or that premium spot will have, you know, their own entrance procession, their own kind of lobby, their own kind of, you know, experience to the to facility. Because I mean, you're gonna you're gonna pay up for that for that opportunity to be able to see, you know, this performance or this this competition from the optimal seats, right? So it's we're putting a higher value on the, that optimal seat, as you as you mentioned, like right? you, you go down to courtside basketball. You, you pay for that extra security in some respect. You pay for that extra level of service. So with that, you get, you know, a different experience. And part of that is a more um, curated or, or private experience for those for those guests. Yeah, definitely. That, that would make the most sense. Maybe it's some sort of like, you know, the luxury suite box is a good template to use because you have those yeah. that are sort of in the mid, like there's, Bleachers above it, bleachers below it, but it's sort of like a separated right. tier. Yeah, it's definitely one way to look at it and one way to approach it. Um, you know, we're trying to trying to see how can we you know make it the most attractive to to the audience that is uh, mostly attracted to esports. I mean, most typically, yes, there are there are some levels of the audience that will they'll buy a private suite, but maybe not all of them. People want to enjoy this with friends, with a group of people, so. Um, how we make sure that we offer enough product, uh, a wide array, a wide array of products that will feed enough people to to get that optimal seat. Definitely, and as stadiums continue to increase in size and games are being played at bigger ones, I think it'll be easier to to handle those different tiers of guests. I mean, right now most esports events are just sort of GA only, and like GA plus mm-hmm. is sort of how it works. And GA plus doesn't even necessarily right, give right. you a different seat it's just like more access to something or allowing you to cut the front of some line that's most esports events i've been to have just been like here's your ticket you can go sit wherever you want exactly yeah and we're yeah we're starting to to get to that next level of, of uh, access to to these venues and, and i think it'll progress more as, as more venues come online and we start to see the different product types and, and what's being offered um it'll definitely be interesting um, to see how far some some people take it, um, you know, if they go for the full suite experience. But you know, like m- many other venue design, you know, challenges. It's about how do we design this venue to be used year round. Yes, probably a majority may be esports, but others there's going to be, you know, concerts. There's going to be stand up comedians. There's going to be TED talks. There's going to be corporate events. So how can we still make this venue useful for many other things as well without trying to you know uh, single it. Yeah, that's that's definitely so important for every stadium. I mean, even NFL stadiums, you can't just build a stadium like that and be like, all right, we have 10 games this year. Yeah, that's not work. It does not compute. Um, we're actually on the cusp of a really interesting esports stadium uh, blow-up, I guess, with the Overwatch League moving to homestand weekends. We just saw... Uh, Shanghai announced a $710 million investment in an esports park in Shanghai. I, oh, it was NetEase was the company. It wasn't Shanghai. It was uh, NetEase, the Chinese publisher of Blizzard games, 
$710 million on this esports park. And one of the, the key parts of it is a place for the Shanghai Dragons to compete in the Overwatch League. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how these different Overwatch League teams invest in esports stadiums and what they do. Do they go the luxury box way? Do they go... I don't know. It's, there's so much possibility and it'll be cool to see what kind of designs we get out of it yeah it's definitely impressive to hear they're they're putting that much you know into these facilities or or the developments around them as well so um i'm much like you excited to see what what these guys will turn out and and where they're willing to actually put their money is is going to be just uh really cool to see has hks been tapped to do any Overwatch League stadium designs? Um, we've been talking to, you know, a few organizations. Um, I can't say for sure if, if things are uh, 100% at this point, but um, we are in, in talks with a few. Oh, you do uh, have that. You know, what is that home? You've got a little bit of that prior history there. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I don't know anything, so I don't want to blow up your spot here, but I will point <laughs> out that you did work for... Uh, for Stan Kroenke's LA Rams, Stan Kroenke owns the team right. in the Overwatch right. League. I'm not, I'm not saying anything's yeah. happening there. I'm just pointing out that that is a connection between. <laughs> yeah. And we also did some work for US Bank Stadium, and they just happened to buy the franchise for Call of Duty. So right, yeah. I forgot about that. So that's the same ownership group. Yeah, uh, it's not Kroenke, but it's, yeah, not the same ownership group that did US Bank Stadium and Vikings. Yeah, yeah. Same, same ownership group. They bought that uh, Call of Duty franchise. Um, so we'll see if that goes anywhere. Hopefully it does. Uh, that would be super exciting for us. Um, kind of extend our relationship with that. That was such a great project and a great family to be working with there. Um, so, yeah, we're hopeful for, for their what they bought into. Um, and they've talked a lot about how hopeful they are about the, that kind of region that they have there, which would be just really optimal. Yeah, I loved I love seeing a team not involved in the Overwatch League get into the Call of Duty League. That was yeah. it, it, that's important because it felt sort of like an add-on for a little while, and then you see a couple more people buy in. And honestly, the Call of Duty League is arguably a more stable entity than the Overwatch League Absolutely. is. But yeah, uh, and that was very much their sentiments as well. Like they felt more more uh, more stability in that league or the and the potential of that league than than they would with what they've seen in Overwatch. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's you have 10, 15 years of Call of Duty events, 10 really mainstream ones, and then uh, yeah. history before that in Overwatch League, you're really banking on we're halfway through the second season, so it feels like it's been around for a while, but you really, yeah, it's it's a lot of money to be investing in an eSport that is still on its, you know, League of Legends at two years old, Counter-Strike at two years old was, I guess Overwatch is now like three and a half as a game, but... I don't know. It's it, it's it's a lot of money that goes into Overwatch real real quick in the process. <laughs> yeah, no, completely great. But if any of those Overwatch League owners are listening to this podcast and they have more money they want to spend, <laughs> check out HKS Sports and Entertainment for your new facility. Everybody yeah, needs a right <laughs> everybody needs a stadium. You're gonna need it soon. Uh-huh. Like, like very soon. There's like four, five teams that have announced where they're competing next year out of the yep, 20 yep. teams in the league. Mm-hmm. And even yeah, some other I ones. Some answers here quick. 
Yeah, you, yeah, like even the Philadelphia Fusion have announced their stadium, but it won't be ready till 2021. So you, you still need a homestand venue for next year. It's, it's pretty crazy. I was really expecting to have more announcements come out. I, I, maybe they're focusing on the end of the season or like, I, I don't know what, I'm not sure what's happening, but I would love to see, you know, those facilities start really popping up soon. <laughs> Yeah, from a lot of what I hear is, you know, it's, it's they're just trying to find, the, everybody's trying to find the right relationship, right, where they can make sure they have a dedicated space, fitting uh, into already existing facilities, calendars, things like that. You know, there's, a, there's some other kind of operational back-end challenges that, you know, maybe not everybody recognizes, but um, trying to find somewhere that they can rely on and, and have an operational relationship on fitting into a, a larger event calendar has been kind of the, some of the uphill battle that I've heard from, from the ground. That's really interesting. I, I don't want to ask you to give too much information, too much inside info, but I'm really curious in those those conversations. What is the design group hearing about You know, what teams are turning to? Are they turning to rent? Are most doing their own facility from the ground up? Or, you know, what's the, what are people feeling in the Overwatch League space? Um, definitely for right now, I think a strong majority is about trying to find relationships with existing venues just so that they can... And it's really not just about one relationship with one venue. It's having a strong relationship with venues of many sizes so that when they can, they can start to gauge how how the audience is responding to buying tickets, you know, mm. this upcoming season, next season is going to be one of those situations where we really start to honestly gauge, can we sell tickets to 10 games in a year, you know, in our home market? Is it, and that's going to be start to, to really define how big the venue should be and what kind of amenities those, those venues should have. And if it's honestly worth it in the short term to build your own or do we need to wait a little bit longer? Um, and it's, it's all information that is a huge unknown right now because there's just not really much data that shows uh, whether yay or nay to that decision, right? I mean, so it'll yeah. be interesting to see um, which venues pull the most people and it'll be interesting to see if uh you know different kinds of venues pull larger audiences or smaller audiences you know a performance venue versus a, a, a kind of smaller arena type set like we saw at the dallas homestand weekend versus you know um a larger arena set it'll be it's some good information to be had in the coming season yeah i, I call uh, the overwatch league the most important esports exper- or experiment and it's and it's because they're operating with all those unknowns like you mentioned nobody knows the market size of these individual markets because there's never been a hometown esports league i mean besides uh china's lpl which is doing some hometown work now but you know a global hometown esports league is like if you're in atlanta i mean atlanta now has a little bit of an idea because they sold out a homestand weekend but if you're in I don't know, even New York, it's a big market. I'm trying to find, oh, let's go, let's do Florida. If you're in the Florida mayhem, what is the market demand for Overwatch League home games? I would, you you can't know. There's really no way of figuring it out until you host an event. So then you're right, you need those contingency plans. Okay, we had a crazy amount of demand. We need to go big. Okay, we didn't have much. We can't have a half-empty arena in our first season. That's interesting. And Florida gets off another kind of unique twist to it, right? Because they have such a transient audience through the, through the summer, right? All the vacationers. So 
are you going to sell more tickets during the summer when everybody's there for Disney World and, and, and Orlando you know, studios? Or are you going the same amount of tickets for the whole year? Don't know. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see if they, if they see a large flux over the summer versus during they like school time. That's true. I'd definitely be buying a ticket because I can't do Florida heat in the summer. I'm If it's air-conditioned, <laughs> I'll buy a ticket. Um, so that, that's everything I really want to talk to you about, Dustin. I, I really enjoy our conversations. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. I really appreciate it. Do you have anything you want to plug from HKS, from your personal work? Uh, what's the latest on the Vitality Studio? Anything you want to plug? Oh, totally. Yeah. I totally almost forgot. Uh, thanks for the reminder. Uh, thankfully to our, our panelist helps. Uh, we're going to we have a panelist out there, a panel discussion out there, up for vote at South by Southwest. So if you want to hear more talks about this, uh, about you know appropriate size venue design, uh, we have a panel up there, um, and I'll give I'll leave the link behind for um, for Mitch here. Yeah, I'll and, put it in the description. Uh, your uploads. Uh, it's going to be myself, uh, Allie Young from Access Replay in Atlanta, uh, Sam Cook from. Um, Esports Insiders, I think, going to be our moderator, and uh, Jonathan from Esports Stadium uh, Arlington is going to be one of our panels as well. So we're going to kind of talk about, you know, the scale appropriateness of, of venue design and what is what does it mean to uh, really design correctly and for the right for the right audience. So it'll be it, hopefully we get enough votes to be chimed in there, which would be great. I appreciate all the upvotes. Um, and then yeah, Team Vitality, uh, it's moving along. So far, I've been told, um, still, still shooting for an open before the end of the year. Um, so, um, I wish I had more to share still, still technically under wraps, but, um, maybe next time. Okay. We'll have to have you come back on the podcast again and talk about that. Yeah. Be sure to check him out at South by Southwest. I will leave the link, uh, to that conversation in the description of this podcast and hopefully that should transfer. Of course, Dustin. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed it, man. Thank you, Mitch. Have a good one. You too.